Hey, I'm Nalin. Hi, I'm Consoria. Hey, this is Grace. And I'm Sawi. We're your hosts. You're listening to Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast, where we answer all of your questions using a public health perspective. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast. Today, Grace is unable to join us, but she'll be back next week. Don't worry, though, we still have two of our climate gals here to help us with today's question. And then there's me, Sally. So before we begin, ladies, what are some recs of the week for our listeners? Okay, I recommend that for for this week, you guys go on YouTube uh, and watch Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Vogue video on her skincare and makeup routine. I really enjoyed it because like throughout the entire video, she also talks about uh, how hard it is for her to be like the youngest, a woman and a person of color in Congress, Um, how her embracing her femininity is a powerful thing and that any other woman uh, should also embrace it, like no matter what kind of position they're in. and she also talks about the pink tax and how that takes away from like women's time and money. So like she talks about a variety of things and like, she, I don't know, she was just very engaging throughout. And then, but then she's also like very into her makeup and her skincare. So I, I don't know, I feel like it's rare to see a politician so relatable to the younger audience. Um, and then my other recommendation is the Folklore album by Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> If you don't want to listen to the whole album, some good songs are The One, This Is Me Trying, Betty, Invisible String. So, yeah. Okay, that's it. I'll have to check that one out. I only listened to Cardigan and some other love song about being together. Or like, You Could Have Been The One. Is it called The One? Yeah, The One's really good. The One. That's a good one. Um, okay, my I have two recommendations this week. Have you all watched Dark Waters? I know that there, we've talked about this in class. Have you watched it? I have not. I really want to, though. Nope. Okay. okay. So, oh my gosh, everyone, I'm actually podcasting in New York City today. I wanted Woo! to mention that. I'm on the <laughs> same coast and in the same time zone as everyone else, as all the other hosts. Um, but on the plane ride back to New York City, I watched Dark Waters. It's really good. The second recommendation have you all ever heard of Podcastle AI? No. Okay, so this is kind of like a hack. I just learned this from TikTok. So if you go to your Google Chrome app store, um, this is actually an extension. It's called podcastle.ai. And what it does, it's really cool. What it does is it'll add an extension to your little hub if you use Google Chrome. And basically any article that you want to read, it turns it into a podcast for you. So if you're a student, you have a bunch of online readings to do, and maybe you want to wash your dishes as you like read, or maybe you prefer to listen to the articles instead, you can use the extension, turn the article into a podcast. What's so cool about it is that you can, of course, stop, rewind, fast forward. You can also download it. You can share it. You can change the voice from a feminine to a masculine if you prefer that. 
Um, and it's just like super easy and it'll allow you to like multitask as you have to go through all these readings. So podcastle.ai, if you're a student or someone who has to do a bunch of online reading, check it out. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your recommendations. Now, let's take a look at our submission for today's episode. This question comes from A Shifting Piece, and they asked, please tell us about how climate change is an environmental justice issue, and what is the environmental public health spin? This has sort of become a buzzword these days, climate change. Now, I imagine that people hear this term and they think weather changes. Climate gals, to start us off, is this an accurate description of climate change? Um, how about we start off with every environmental and climate science professor's favorite intro PowerPoint slide that says, what's the difference between weather and climate? Um, so weather is short-term changes in the atmosphere, such as temperature, humidity, wind, precipitation, etc. Uh, whereas climate is the long-term observations of these atmospheric conditions. So in other words, I saw this uh, good analogy on Google. Uh, weather is the clothes you decide to wear each day, but climate tells you what type of clothes to have in your closet. So that leads us to the question of what is climate change? So I think as Consoria just mentioned, climate is more of these long-term observations that we see in weather patterns, long-term averages over years, time scale usually. And we can see most notably the impacts of changing climate in things like rising temperatures, which impacts sea levels. You know, we often hear about rising sea levels and then how that leads to more flooding along the coast, things like that. And another big thing that we often hear about too is melting ice sheets. Now that we know what climate is, what would you all say causes climate change? So as Nolan just briefly listed, there's a number of things that uh, contribute to climate change. Like you always hear about like how Earth has gone through like many temperature rises and extinctions in the past. That's a lot of arguments that a lot of people use to discredit the current climate change situation. Um, however, the concern with our situation is that climate is changing at a faster rate and sooner than it should be naturally. And that's because of uh, anthropogenic causes. So um, things like increased CO2 emission, that leads to rising temperatures, which can lead to melting snow and permafrost, uh, warming of oceans, more forest fires and other natural disasters. And then when all that happens, uh, that leads to... Um, changing environments for disease vectors like mosquitoes, uh, more release of methane from the melting snow and the permafrost. And then when snow melts, there's like less albedos, which means like the snow can't reflect back uh, the sunlight. So then earth retains more heat. And then when there's forest fires, there's less trees. So then they can't absorb the carbon dioxide. And then uh, if oceans are too warm, the phytoplankton also can absorb carbon dioxide. And so that's more CO2 in the atmosphere. And then all of that is just like 
cascading effects in which CO2 levels continue to rise and the temperature continues to increase and like this feedback loop that just keeps on adding up. I think one of the main kind of starting points for all this is an increase in various gases that can help trap heat in our, the Earth's atmosphere. And we call this greenhouse gases. So these gases that have the ability to trap the radiation from the sun, which is what heats up the, the atmosphere. One important thing to note is that greenhouse gases are important because without them, our planet would be too cold. Like we wouldn't be able to live comfortably at like a good temperature. So, but one of the primary greenhouse gases is CO2, as Consoria just mentioned, carbon dioxide. And scientists have been tracking CO2 concentrations over the year, both by current monitoring and looking back at CO2 levels in the past as well by looking at ice cores. Um, and as Consoria also mentioned, you know, our planet's climate is cyclic and rising and falling over time. According to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, before the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1700s, the overall global CO2 level was about 280 parts per million. But since then, the global CO2 concentration has been increasing and increasing at a faster rate than what is considered to be quote-unquote natural. Another interesting thing too is that a lot of climate scientists, a lot of their work is predicting, making different models to look at if different conditions, if the conditions of various emissions are what they are today, what will that look like in the future? And obviously predicting back as well to see what the conditions today what that is able to tell us about the past, things like that. So they go back and forth, you know, predicting into the future and then predicting back as well to double check. Um, and as we mentioned, the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are much higher than what's considered to be normal. And so when the scientists do projections based on conditions in the past, the only way that they can match what the conditions are today is if they factor in these anthropogenic emissions. So in other words, that is, you know, another layer of proof to say that the CO2 emissions today, the climate today isn't due to natural causes, but it has anthropogenic um, factors. And what would you say are some of the things that we're doing today that we weren't doing before that's causing that increase? I think a kind of like marker in time is during the Industrial Revolution is because, you know, since then, different production, I don't know what you call it, um, factories or, you know, it, there's more, an increasing amount of that going on, which emits all these gases into the atmosphere. Also, how the U.S. particularly, and I'm sure a lot of other countries as well, gets um, their energy is through coal burning which releases a lot of carbon dioxide and a lot of other gases into the atmosphere. And so since that time period in the mid 1700s, you know, all these concentrations and the amounts of these gases that are released into the atmosphere has continuously been increasing over like over time. Um, and I think 
when, when you're talking about climate, you're talking about like large timescales. It's not like today or tomorrow, it's we're talking about like on years. And so obviously all these effects of all these increased emissions into the atmosphere build upon each other. And over time, it kind of like snowballs into what we see and experience today. And I'm sure over that period of time since then, the amount that we have emitted into the atmosphere has has increased. It's not that like we started emitting stuff at that time period. It's like the amount that we're emitting has also increased. And so the effects that we're seeing in how like the climate is responding to that is also getting worse. Yeah, I, I also read that uh, like it kind of started the industrial revolution, but then like the last 30 or 40 years or something, that's where most of our ecological footprints came from so maybe it's like population growth or something we're like consuming more than our planet can uh generate um i don't know if you guys have heard of this term i just recently learned about it um it's a earth overshoot day have you guys heard of it no what is that i i I saw it on instagram because i follow this uh climate page and basically it's um so it marks the date when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services in a given year uh, exceeds what Earth can generate in that year. So um, for this year, our overshoot day was on August 22nd, which was about a month later than last year. So we, so it's like saying we use all of this year's Earth supply um, on August 22nd. So anything that we use beyond that, we're overshooting Earth's capacity, probably because of the pandemic, because we're staying inside. Uh, But they pointed out that even though it was later, there's actually only been like about eight or 9% reduction in our footprint. All right. So the second part of a shifting pieces question is about how climate change is an environmental justice issue. So first of all, what is environmental justice? So according to the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA, they have described environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And they also go on to say that they believe this goal can be achieved when everyone enjoys, one, the same degree of protection from environmental and health hazards, and two, equal access to the decision-making process to have a healthy environment in which to live, learn, and work. One example that comes to mind is one that we've actually discussed back in our toxins episode, Cancer Alley in New Orleans. If you can remember, we talked about an 80 mile stretch of land that is both inhabited, that is inhabited by both residents of New Orleans and major polluters. So when we think about environmental justice, we can see how you know, how regulation and policy hasn't really protected the residents living along the Mississippi River who are constantly exposed to the pollution caused by these businesses. These are residents that are low income, they're poor, and they're mostly people of color. 
Another example that comes to mind is the Hopi tribe in the northeastern part of Arizona. One of the issues that they have constantly had to deal with has a lot to do with water contamination due to arsenic in their primary water sources. And I, I mention this because there has actually been an ongoing battle for the last few years between the Hopi tribe and government agencies in terms of figuring out who is responsible for cleaning up this mess. Now, a lot of the onus has been put on the Hopi tribe to do something about the arsenic in the water. And I see this as an environmental justice issue because not only does the Hopi tribe have to deal with limited resources and lack of funds to take on this project, but they also have to endure the exposure to arsenic in the process, which many of them have already been poisoned with. So again, Hopi tribe in northeastern part of Arizona, Cancer Alley in New Orleans, these are just two examples of how environmental justice issues are at the forefront of people's everyday health as well as the environment. So I guess on that note, what would you, like how would you climate gals describe climate change as an environmental justice issue? I think climate change is an environmental justice issue because it disproportionately affects people globally. So those who live in developing countries, they contribute less to climate change than those who live in developed countries. Um, but the ones who are already feeling the effects of climate change, uh, such as by being displaced from homes, uh, experiencing wars, decreased food security, and so on, uh, they're the folks who live in developing countries. I'm currently reading a book called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells right now. And he mentioned that while it isn't necessary for Westerners to adopt the lifestyle of the global poor, if the average American were to confine our carbon footprint similarly to our European counterparts, then the US carbon emissions would fall by more than half. Um, he also adds that Westerners have, quote unquote, uh, comforted themselves by contorting their own consumption patterns into performances of moral or, or environmental purity, such as less beef, more Teslas, fewer trans and transatlantic flights. Um, so I felt a little bit called out. <laughs> but um, yeah, I... Um, he also mentioned that the sum of these individual choices do not add up too much. And I see that this uh, statement is backed up by data by, uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, Earth Overshoot Day. Like, even though we've been in the pandemic and people have presumably been reducing our carbon footprint by not being able to travel by planes or commuting to work and school and stuff like that, uh, there's only been like a 9% reduction in our ecological footprint compared to last year. This all reminds me of this New York Times article I saw a few days ago, um, which reported on how racist housing policies, and the article was um, focusing on Virginia, um, but I'm sure this could be anywhere in the US. So how racist housing policies have left specific neighborhoods hotter than others which is kind of a strange connection to think about, but when you actually look at kind of how can you go from housing policies to more heat, it kind of makes sense, you know? So, okay, so I'm gonna try to walk us through this. So in the past, 
specific areas have been um, have undergone this process called redlining, which is kind of defining areas or neighborhoods as being quote unquote less desirable. Um, and so as a result, they receive kind of less investments in different things, um, whether that's like investments for housing or neighborhood development, all these things. And of course, all these areas are inhabited by people of color and people of lower socioeconomic status. Um, fast forward to today, these neighborhoods that have previously been redlined have lower tree cover and they often use concrete as pavement, which traps heat. And so this leads to kind of higher temperatures in the, these neighborhoods compared to other neighborhoods that haven't had this kind of like redlined designation. And as we've learned in our class, shade is not equally distributed across neighborhoods, right? So if you think about which neighborhoods are more likely to receive investments for parks or beautification projects, which include planting lots of trees and different greeneries. So as our planet's temperature continues to rise, who is more likely to disproportionately feel the effects of the increased temperature? Um, but not only in terms of temperature, but also climate change results in more extreme weather events. So if you think of things like hurricanes and tornadoes. So when these events occur, who are the ones of the people who are affected, who is more likely to have the resources to recover from these events? And people don't have the same ability to recover. In my mind, that is how climate change is an environmental justice issue. You mentioned extreme weather changes. I just want to refer back to the book, but he also mentioned like how with like climate change, you'll see more natural disasters. And he, he uh, the author said, but are they really natural anymore because uh, of climate change and how we're inducing this and exacerbating it? So like it's, it's more like it's because it was caused by us. Like they're not occurring naturally according to what regular weather patterns would be or their cycles like there's things like oh um this hurricane sh should only happen like every a thousand year or like this earthquake and stuff like that but they're happening way sooner and more frequently so they are wrongly called natural disasters and yeah, that blew my mind yeah there's a i think maybe a few years ago like a think like Sandy hurricane or like superstorm Sandy Sandy was designated to be like like what you were saying consoria a once in a thousand year once in a hundred year event but then you know since then we've seen these events occur over and over again and they are all considered to be a once in a hundred year event but they're occurring like every year yes that's crazy that's a really good point I so I just came across that article actually I was on LinkedIn and someone posted that article Nolan and I just read it yesterday it was super interesting um, I also thought about like so redlining I first learned about redlining when it um, when learning about school districts and how in some cases if you don't live in an area you might have to use like a family member's address so that you actually are allowed to go to the school that's in their quote-unquote district yeah I think also one thing to know I I went through kind of the the concept of redlining super fast but 
it actually has a lot of impacts to this day. And I'm sure it's still going on, maybe not consciously, but because of how racism is institutionalized and it's systemic, you know, different policies could be racist and people don't even realize it. Um, but as Sally just mentioned, you know, redlining has the ability to affect not only how much shade you might have in your environment, but also your education as well, which has other impacts later on in life. That actually reminds me of the challenges my own homeland has to endure because of climate change. So many of the islands in the South Pacific are at risk of basically seeing their land fall underneath water because of rising sea levels. My brother who is living on the island now, I remember him posting images and news updates about, um, about this major storm that came in and basically just caused a huge amount of flooding. When you think about that, you know, it's also ruined cropland and people's ability to live off of the land. So there's this effort to get the government to build a seawall. And that may sound like a band-aid solution, but at the same time, it's something that can be done right away for the time being until we can figure out this whole issue of like reducing our contribution to climate change and all of its repercussions. Yeah, kind of, we talked about how carbon dioxide can trap in more heat and increase the temperature of the atmosphere. But another effect of uh, carbon dioxide is that it can act, so it's a gas, obviously, in it, but it can dissolve in water. And so, you know, all this CO2 that's in the atmosphere, it can actually dissolve into the ocean water. And that creates a condition that we call ocean acidification. And think of kind of the environment that you're living in if you were a marine animal and the water that you're living in is slowly becoming more and more acidic. And that's not the conditions that is, you know, quote unquote optimal for you to live in. And so obviously as the ocean becomes more acidic, you see all these effects of like the plankton dying, coral reefs dying, fish and all these other marine animals not being able to live um, because their conditions are the conditions that they need for their optimal um, life is kind of deteriorating okay sorry i keep referring to the book but it's just <laughs> um the author mentioned how uh like what is it called a model you end or something like that um you know how like people there's like overall problem and try to solve it together. I think that's how that thing works. But he said if there were like any one global problem that, you know, a scenario that should bring nations together, it would be something as all encompassing as climate change, which permeates through every aspect of our lives. But instead, it seems like every single nation like just became more nationalistic and instead of working together, we're all like, uh, nope, like you worry about yourself and like, we're just gonna worry about us especially like countries that are emitting the most carbon dioxide since we're not feeling the effects yet. So we're just kind of leaving everyone behind. I think the idea of people kind of, and this obviously is more on like a nation level of countries being like, we're going to do our own thing and we don't want to work together. I think that's just so silly because like, you know, 
if you look at smoke, like, or any kind of gas, I'm just using smoke as an example, because you can actually see where smoke goes, like, it's not going to stop because it was produced in the United States, and it doesn't want to go into, like, Mexico or something, you know, like, it's just going to go up into the atmosphere, and obviously everyone, like, breathes in the same atmosphere, so even if something was created, like, you know, emitted from one location, it's gonna get evened out all around the globe. So I think that's very silly when people are like, oh no, it's like, we have to do what we can, you do what we can. Like, you know, we're not gonna work together. So taking into account what we just discussed, what are some of the public health implications of climate change as an environmental justice issue? Um, okay, so we can start by asking who's at risk or who's most vulnerable. Um, so there's so many factors that can increase one's risk, such as uh, their race, socioeconomic status, gender, and age. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, socioeconomic status. Um, as mentioned earlier, those in developing countries are already experiencing the effects of climate change. But even looking at the United States, in New York, for instance, we see environmental injustices in the city based on socioeconomic status as well. So those living in disadvantaged communities tend to be BIPOC folks and disadvantaged communities, they have low resilience and protection against climate change. Uh, like mentioned earlier, when we we're talking about um, shade in different neighborhoods. Um, so things like heat waves, wildfires, and storms disproportionately affect people of color. Um, and then a brief example of race is um, that aside from climate change as one of the environmental justice issues, there's issues like uh, having poorly maintained housing that has pets or living in an area that has high pollution levels, both of which can cause or exacerbate asthma or other respiratory illnesses. Um, at my current internship, I have another one. Uh, we're looking at data <laughs> on children asthma and homes that report seeing roaches uh, and like other different types of environmental data. In Washington Heights, South Bronx, and Harlem, uh, which uh, our places in New York for our listeners. And these areas are also predominantly Black, uh, Latinx, and Latinx uh, demographically. And then we look at the data and compare it with Upper West Side, which has a more white population. And you can really see the disparities. You can probably already guess, but children asthma rates in homes with roaches are way higher in Washington Heights, South Bronx, and Harlem compared to the West Side. So these are uh, some of the factors and how you can view it from a public health point of view. So on that note, I'm also thinking about people who live off of the land are definitely affected by climate change as well. Yeah, to expand on that, um, in, when looking at the effects of climate change, people kind of living on the poles, feel the effects of climate change more intensely than maybe people kind of closer to the equator. So if you think about people in the Arctic communities, um, and there's a lot of indigenous populations that live, like you were saying, off the land, 
you know, the, the indigenous communities that live in the Arctic regions that rely on hunting or growing um, their own food. And obviously these uh, communities of people have so much care for the land, how they're hunting, like how much they're hunting, how much they're growing, because obviously they know that this is their kind of source of food and so they have to maintain it and take good care of it but because of climate change and warming temperatures you see kind of animals dying off maybe they're not able to grow as much food and so they're having to rely on alternative alternative sources of food like canned food that's being flown in from kind of in the country somewhere and <laughs> having to rely on more quote unquote Western diets, which because of that leads to higher rates of different health outcomes like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, things like that. I feel like oftentimes when we think of heat, we're just like, oh, it's hot, <laughs> you know, that just like makes us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but, but heat also has a lot of effects on how like different processes in your body. So like we are, we as humans have systems in our body to regulate our heat so that we don't overheat or we, you know, it like, it's called thermal regulation. Um, and when it's hotter outside, it affects with our body's ability to regulate our own body temperature. And so not only that, but heat can also exacerbate other health outcomes that people or existing health issues that people have, such as um, kind of, I think like cardiovascular disease is one of them. It can lead to like fainting, um, things like that. And I think there's, we see an increased number of people dying each year because of heat related causes, but they, but it doesn't necessarily present itself as like, oh, you know, heat is making them die directly. It's like heat is affecting something else that's making people die. So like heart attacks and things like that. And as you're talking about heat, Nolan, I pulled up this article um, on the New York Times. I actually saved this from back in June, but June 18th, 2020. Um, and the article talks about climate change being tied to pregnancy risks. So this, again, another public health issue, it primarily affects mostly black mothers. Um, I wanna read a little snippet of the article because I think it ties into what we've all talked about up until this point. So it says, pregnant women exposed to high temperatures or air pollution are more likely to have children who are premature, underweight, or stillborn. And African-American mothers and babies are harmed at a much higher rate than the population at large. And this research was actually examining a study with 32 million births in the United States. That's a huge N. But it's really, it's, this really speaks to what we've talked about. You know, Nalan, you mentioned redlining earlier and how certain communities or neighborhoods are marked off because they are seen as less desirable. Well, if we look at who lives in those neighborhoods, it's mostly people of color, low income folks, right? Um, and this also just speaks to, you know, access to an adequate lifestyle. Like we don't, those folks don't have a means to get air conditioning, right? So they have to suffer through the heat basically. Something else that it says in the article is that 
not only are minority communities in the U.S. far more likely to be hotter than the surrounding areas, a phenomenon known as the heat island effect, but they are also more likely to be located near polluting industries, as we've mentioned with Cancer Alley. So something to definitely think about when it comes to climate change and heat and shade and air conditioning and redlining and all of this stuff and how it actually is affecting also not even just mothers, but if you think about plants and food production, oh, Ashlyn, you would be so proud of me if you're listening to this. If you think about heat and heat stress on plants, all of a sudden, right, they can no longer perform as well as they we would expect them to basically. So then that forces sort of like the food industry or agriculture to kind of turn to alternative means, which is why, shout out to my boy Ziska, Dr. Ziska, who was my advisor on last, sem last semester's research paper, which is why we're seeing this talk about genetically modified organisms as a possible solution or maybe a, a method to the effects of climate change on food production, right? So like you have heat stress, you have all these different changes, plants are just not, they are not acclimated to what is currently happening in the environment they're growing in. So we need to find alternative solutions. And if you can turn to maybe GMOs or if you can grow in substrate, so you no longer rely on soil and having to tend to the land, you know, maybe these are some different like alternatives and possible solutions that we can do now to prepare for the future. Recommendation for our listeners, go take a look at Dr. Ziska's research. He's looking at how changing atmospheric conditions can impact the nutritional value of rice. Is that correct, Sally? Mm -hmm. Golden rice, yes. Golden rice, yes. Very interesting stuff. Very. So pretty much, I think a very kind of distilled way to look at what we all just talked about was that climate change and impacts of climate change can be viewed in two kind of main ways, which is like your more direct impacts, which we might see in terms of like, you know, rising temperatures, melting ice, um, rising sea levels, and the more indirect impacts, things that, you know, climate change impacts something else, which then impacts something else. And I feel like a lot of times the health impacts are more kind of indirect. And so it's not, it's not necessarily something that we would see or recognize initially, but if you kind of look at like, you know, you have this health outcome, where does that come from? And then where does that come from? I think people, people can see that a lot of times it might stem from an issue or a result of climate change. So all these heavy discussions, ladies, I have a question for you. I feel like being in public health and environmental health science, uh, like I've gotten asked is like I'm optimistic about efforts to mitigate or adapt to climate change or, you know, like some people they're like, oh, like there's no point in having children because that's just birthing them into a grim future. So just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. I think this speaks to the effects of a growing population for sure, right? With more people means more consumption, more need for this, more need for that. And this question also makes me think about Greta Thunberg. 
and how incredible she is as an advocate. And I mean, I only know her from a distance, you know, via social media, but she just seems like she has the knowledge and the understanding of what it means to care for our planet. I mean, you've seen, you've probably seen interviews of her where she's just so angry about like how older generations, how could you let us get to such a, you know, such a critical point in time regarding the health of our planet. And so I feel like I find hope in the fact that because we are aware and we understand this, that if we decide to bring someone into this world and raise them as our own, that we would also instill that knowledge in them. So one of the things like within the Christian community, one of there's a scripture that says, you know, teach your children in the way of the Lord so that they would never depart from it. Basically saying if you raise your kids with and instilling that kind of knowledge in them at a very young age and you do it well enough that they would never ever question if that was right or if that could, you know, they would never doubt it. I feel like I would approach that situation, that same, the same situation with that kind of understanding. Like if you could raise your children to care for the planet, but to do it in a way that they are truly conscious of everything that they do, how they do it, where they do it, then maybe there is hope. But then at the same time, something that was brought to my attention is that there are so many kids on this planet that like don't have a home, that don't have a family, they don't have parents. So if you are eager to be a mom or a dad, maybe consider adopting, maybe consider looking into kids that are here that just need a home and need a family. And instead of, I don't want to, I don't know, I feel bad for saying this, but like, instead of like adding one more person to the population or two, and I know it doesn't seem like, well, it's just one or two more people, but if we all have that mentality, that's just going to go from like hundreds to thousands to millions. Right. But like, think about how you can be a mother or be a father, be a parent or guardian of someone who's already here and is in dire need of the kind of lifestyle that you can provide for them. That was very thoughtful. I feel like if you ever decide to be a parent, you know, I think you'd be a very, a very good one, Sally. Um, I think, <laughs> like, whenever people ask me this, I'm always unsure because I'm, I'm not an expert or anything. And I'm also not the most optimistic person. But also, like, uh, it kind of gives me hope a little bit because, um, like we mentioned earlier, uh, our current climate situation, it's like, it's caused by our own action it's not the usual like natural cycle of the earth so which means that uh if more people acknowledge this and realize it then maybe there's hope of like mitigating it because it is caused by us so that maybe we can um slow down some of the problems whereas if it was naturally occurring then it's like well <laughs> guess we're we're going through another natural extinction but, uh, but like, if, if I think about it that way, then I'm like, okay, if we all work together, we can do it. I feel like I, yeah, I agree with that. I think that our situation, the state of kind of the world looks very grim right now from a climate perspective. But I feel like we still have to be optimistic about our ability to help the situation, our ability to rectify or mitigate the situation because like you can't afford to not like what's the alternative is to just kind of sit back and do nothing 
But I think that also it's important for people to realize that the issue of climate change, I mean, as we've talked about throughout this whole podcast, it can affect everything. It has a potential and it already is starting to affect literally everything, whether that's like our economy or the environment, obviously, and like the food that we eat, how we live, things like that, right? And I think we also have to realize that to solve this issue, it's not an, it's not something that will give you instant gratification. It's not like you do something today and tomorrow you can see the effects of that. It's you do something today and you might see the effects of that maybe five years from now. And I think that's really important to realize. And I think that's like an important um, kind of setting of expectations that needs to happen. But I also think that you can't afford to not do anything because by the time that we actually do feel more of the effects that we're feeling right now, it's going to be too late um, to actually do anything about it. And I think like, look at, you know, there are already communities, as we've talked about around the world who are experiencing in one way or another, the effects of climate change. Like think about kind of like the wars that are being fought or um, even, you know, in South Africa, they're running out of water or even droughts in California even. So I think that setting that expectation that it's, you know, it's not going to be something that gets resolved very fast. Like we're in this for the long haul and it's definitely not an individual problem. It's, it's a collective issue. So I just want to read a quote off the book I'm reading. <laughs> It's like I'm just doing promo for him, though he doesn't need it. Uh, <laughs> it like kind of touches on uh, the whole complacency thing that Nolan mentioned. Uh, so it goes, there are so many aspects to the climate kaleidoscope that transforms our intuitions about environmental devastation into an uncanny complacency that it can be hard to pull the whole picture of climate distortion into focus but we simply wouldn't or couldn't or anyway didn't look squarely in the face of science. So sorry, that was a little bit sad, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, that leads us to our next discussion of how can we help with the situation, not be so complacent. We have the science. So, and we want to believe in it and use it to our advantage. So what are some realistic and attainable things that we can do to fight climate change? I'm not suggesting to only do this, but I think something that we're doing now is having a conversation about this um, and really dissecting it for all that it's worth and all of the effects that it can have on human life, environmental well-being, um, the economy, as you said, Nolan. Um, so definitely spreading awareness, I think, is a starting point, especially for folks who just don't see climate change as a threat. And I think that has a lot to do with, Nolan, you're saying it's not something that happens overnight, right? Like us doing something and then seeing the change isn't going to happen overnight, just like someone seeing the impact isn't going to happen overnight. Um, no, I totally agree with that. I think having conversations, educating, letting people know about the situation, um, and how maybe climate can be connected to everything in our lives is a good starting point, right? Because maybe some people might not know that climate change can affect their health or how climate change affects their food or how climate change affects their job, right? 
Um, so I think that's a good first place to start. And then also what you were saying about little things that you can do, um, changing habits to maybe be more environmentally conscious um, within reason, obviously, um, is also a good place to start. And then continue learning about different topics relating to this. Climate Gals, thank you so much for your expertise today. And thank you to a shifting piece for your question. We hope this gives you a nice starting point to climate change conversations you plan to have with others. And to our listeners, we appreciate you all very, very much. Please be sure to tune in next week. Next week is our last episode of season one. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you have a response to today's question, we want to hear it. Head over to our site and post your thoughts or submit your own question. This is Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast. I'm Grace, and thanks for listening.